had a really good time preparing all this. Um, I'd like to thank some folks for their help. Um, first of all, the incredible staff of this church are nothing less than incredible. And they have just bent over backwards. <laughs> and I kind of enjoy being in charge of this uh, conference because I got to pick the menu and I really like the menu. <laughs> Anyway, the, the staff has just really bent over backwards to help me and remind me of things that we need to get done and help me just get it all done. Um, Jennifer McCoy and Tina McQueen have been a big, big help. Jennifer does the serve store and Tina has helped kind of get all the, the appetizers and everything together. We've had a huge group of decorating angels that have come in and and done what's on the tables. I want to remind you that all of these are for sale, so if you would ha have any interest in buying anything, we'd love for you to buy it. And uh, I think Jennifer and Carrie probably, yeah, Jennifer's got the, um, will, will be taking up money for the um, decorations. Um, let's see, our Blues Brothers group have just been really putting their heart in all of this. Um, Gary Cook has just been unbelievable with audiovisual, so he is, <laughs> he's why this show is going on. Um, after, uh, Reverend Hastings is going to come up in a minute and, and do a blessing, and after that, uh, when the lights go down, I'd like to get all the kids to come up front here, to, um, so they'll get a bird's eye view of the show and then we're gonna call them up on stage at some point. Um, and I think probably just enjoy yourselves and please open your hearts and your pocketbooks for our global missions causes. Thank you. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, in the back of the room are the stars of the lunch. Yes. How about a round of applause? <laughs> They've been cooking their hearts out this morning, and I really appreciate them. Okay. There's another person that needs to receive a round of applause for the menu that she picked and for the conference that she has helped put together as the chair of the Global Mission Conference this year. Is this number 12 or 13? 12. I was about to say, where's Jones, but there, but there was Jones Jr. that answered. So number 12, let's hear it for Lucille Flournoy. And up here on the uh, blackboard, it, I don't know if you noticed, but we are eating in the FPC Cafe. 
that's been serving up soul food since 1830. Let's pray. Loving God, your word tells us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we have been fed with a rich and abundant feast this morning in worship as we've heard your word proclaimed and had it uh, revealed to us. We pray that your word would be implanted in our hearts. We are on a mission and we have been for a long time and you're continuing to call us to join you in mission and it's our joy to celebrate that today and in the days to come. And Lord, we also give you thanks and praise for the food that you give us for you know that our bodies need nourishment and you always feed us so faithfully and so well and you have done so again today. Thank you for this rich feast around these tables the hands that have provided it, the farmers that have grown this food, those who have transported it, those who have prepared it and served it. And Lord, we are grateful recipients and pray we'll be made strong to do your work and your will. You've also fed us with the fellowship around these tables. And we are grateful for these relationships that we enjoy in your son's name that also strengthen us for service. So with all these and many other gifts, we say thank you in the name of Jesus and let all God's children say, Amen. me and the Lord, we've got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. We're putting the band back together. Forget it. Don't we? We're on a mission from God. Matt, me and Elwood. Band back together. Ma'am, you gotta understand that this is a lot bigger than any domestic problems you might be experiencing. Would it make you feel any better if you knew that what we're asking Matthew to do is a holy thing? You see, we're on a mission from God. First, you trade the Cadillac for a microphone. Then you lie to me about the band. Now you're gonna put me right back in the joint. They're not gonna catch us. We're on a mission from God. six miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Yep.
bread. Mm-hmm. I'd like some dry toasted white bread, please. You want butter or jam on that toast? Just dry, ma'am. Y'all got any fried chicken? Best fried chicken in the state. I'll have four fried chickens and a Coke, please. You want uh, legs or wings? Uh, four whole fried chickens and a Coke, please. And some dry white toast, please. Do you want anything to drink with that? No, ma'am. A Coke. There's two fellas out there. They look like Hasidic diamond merchants. Say what? Maybe even CIA dudes or something. What do they want to eat? Well, the tall, skinny one wants dry white toast. Elwood. And the other one wants four whole fried chickens and a Coke. That's Jake. That's the Blues Brothers. Hey, Jake. Hey, Elwood. Matt. Oh, hey. Good to see you. Hey, great to see you too, brother. Been a long time. Listen, Matt, me and Elwood, we're putting a band back together. We need you and Blue Lou to go out on the road with us. Hey, shh. Don't talk about that in here, man. My wife will kill me. Ma'am, you got to understand there's something bigger going on right now than any domestic troubles you may be experiencing. What? What's he talking about? Just chill, okay? It's good. You good, sugar? Don't you sugar me. I don't know what's going on in here, but you are not going back on the road with these hoodlums. And you are not going to play in some two-bit sleazy dives anymore. We've got a restaurant to run. But this is Jake and Elwood, the Blues Brothers. The Blues Brothers? They still owe you money, fool. 
Ma'am, would it make any difference to know that what we're asking Matt here to do is a holy thing? You see, we're on a mission from God. Now, don't you blaspheme in here. You can just go right out that door where you came in without your dry white toast and without your four whole chickens and without Matt Guitar Murphy. Wait a minute now. What, what, Let me wait, tell wait. you something. I love you. However, I'm the man. You are the woman. And what I choose to do with my life is my choice. You better think about what you're saying. You better think about the consequences of your actions. This time I'd like to ask Reverend Doubt to please join us on the stage for uh, this year's Mildred Frazier Cadet Award that is offered to a member of our congregation uh, who's best exemplified uh, both being the hands and feet of Christ and an embodiment of living out the Great Commission. So, Jones. All right, it's a great pleasure uh, to have my, uh, my Academy Award moment, like I say. I just can't get off the stage now having uh, been a Blues Brothers, but anyway. This award is given out every year for someone who has served in the area of global or local mission or combination thereof. And sometimes it's a lifetime achievement award and sometimes it is to a specific action in that past year. And this year, our recipient is somebody who has served in many ways and this is in some respects a specific as well as lifetime achievement award. This person is somebody who exemplifies servant leadership in our church. Somebody who is, has served as an elder, but someone who has also stuffed bulletins and answered phones. Someone who has 
labored in the Sunday school department, making sure that certain details take place. If that person was not there, I just don't know what happened on more than one Sunday. But specifically in the area of mission, this person has stepped in with Valley Interfaith Promise. This person has spent nights, sometimes more than one night a week, uh, when we have had guests here. This person has stepped in uh, in a leadership role, first with the board of Valley Interfaith Promise, and currently serves, has become de facto, uh, our coordinator, particular coordinator for our church. So when this person calls and asks your help, please, one way or the other, help this person when we're hosting in April. I gotta give that commercial. I can't see this person right now because of the light, but I know that she is here, and I hope she's not too embarrassed because she is truly humble in her service. But your recipient for this year is Margie Bickerstaff. enjoyed everything I've ever done with this church and I've had lots of support and just uh, thank you. <laughs> it's top secret so she had no way of preparing any kind of remarks so I appreciate off the cuff being able to do that. And now it's an honor for me to introduce our keynote speaker, uh, Reverend Dr. Cody Watson, who is now for his fourth round here at the church, having spoke at 8.45 this morning for Sunday school at 11 o'clock, and a chance to have a few remarks today. Uh, he wore a very interesting vest. I hope you got the story behind the vest um, that he wore. And now he's got another interesting uh, garment. He'll explain that when he is up here. Uh, an extensive biography is in your program, it's in the bulletin. Uh, I've already said numerous things about him. He has labored and served in mission in different fields around the world, and then been based in Birmingham for about the last 20 years with Presbyterian Frontier Fellowship, speaking to churches, networking, connecting people to mission to unreached people groups throughout the world. Uh, it was a privilege to bring him back here and again, uh, some of you here, he actually many years ago came to Columbus on a pilgrimage. And for those of you who know what the words Phi Alpha means, that's the connection. So you can give him the handshake when it's over. Just go off to the corner and do that, have a chapter reading. But anyway, uh, Reverend Dr. Cody Watson, please come up. This is really my first time to Columbus since I was at Emory University. And we did do a field trip, and I'd forgotten about it until talking to Jones last night. I was a member of the SAE fraternity up at Emory. 
Any other SAEs here? Anyway, I don't want to call some of that history, but <laughs> I see one back there. Actually, two or three of my fraternity brothers here. Bill Rumor, I think, is a lawyer here. Anyway, I'd love to contest. Been that's a long time ago. Some some of you have asked why I was wearing this shirt. Somebody said you spill paint on it. Well, no. And a few of you probably now know it, but this is a letter in the Arabic alphabet. <clears throat> it stands for the letter N, which stands for the word Nazarene. The last verse in Matthew chapter 2 says Jesus should be called a Nazarene because he's born in Nazareth. And this letter has been being painted on the doors of the followers of Jesus' homes in Iraq and Syria. And they're given the option of fleeing of converting to Islam or dying. There's supposedly another option that they can pay a huge tax and some of them paid the tax and then they're still executed. And so it's a way of showing solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Syria. In this 11 o'clock service, I was going to tell another story, but then I decided being on TV, maybe I shouldn't, but I can tell you that story here. Three weeks ago, I was a part of the Egypt Network meeting down near Orlando. And I didn't, I've only been to Cairo, well, at the end of there twice. I've only really been to Cairo once. And I was there for the dedication of a course called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement in Arabic. And that makes me say, y'all need to be the host. I'm going to say it again. First Presbyterian needs to be the host of this course called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. It's the best thing I know of for mobilizing a congregation to finishing the task of the Great Commission. I could send a DVD on this, but it started by another man I mentioned twice this morning, Dr. Ralph Winter. He's a Presbyterian missionary in Guatemala, then the Fuller School of World Mission. But when I was at Columbia Seminary, there was a scholarship available called a, for a conference called Urbana. How many of y'all heard of Urbana? A few of you. I went to Urbana 73, and I didn't know what it was. It was mostly 20,000, mostly college students. And I remember taking a bus from Atlanta going up to south of Chicago to Urbana. Zero degrees in the snow, but that's where Billy Graham spoke and John Stott and Paul Little. And I wasn't going to share this, but this is thought coming to my mind. Paul Little gave a talk there, and that talk was the highlight for me. And later, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, who sponsors Urbana, published it. It's called Affirming God's Will for Your Life. I was 22 years old, I'm trying to determine what God would have me do, and I never thought beyond the Southeast United States. I was in seminary. I was going to be a pilot in the Air Force. My father was retired Air Force. He was a B-17 pilot in World War II. He shot down on his fourth mission, but escaped into Spain. It's another story. But the Lord had other plans, and I had an accident my junior year at Emory, and so I lost my Air Force ROTC scholarship. And I'm looking back, I'm glad the Lord had those other plans for me. But Paul Little was speaking, and he gave us one illustration. It's a huge oak log about the size of four of these tables here. There are nine people on one end of the log carrying that log and one on the other. He said, you're the 11th person asked to help carry that log. Which end of the log will you go to? Now, I'd been a math major, so I was able to figure that out. You can imagine that. So you've got nine people on that end and one on the other. That one person is struggling. You're the 11th person. So you go to that end of that one person is struggling. And then he went on to explain that that log represents the whole world. And where you have 10% of the world's population, primarily back then in West, Western Europe and North America, there you have 90% of all the full-time Christian workers involved in cross-cultural missionary service. 
where you have 90% of the world's population, there you have 10% of the full-time Christian workers, whether it be ministers or community development workers or nurses or whatever. And John 3.16 was reminded in that talk that God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he said, well, the needs of the world is one of the things to consider in your life course. And that made so much sense to me. I signed a commitment card saying, if the Lord opened the doors, I was willing to go serve cross-culturally. And the Lord did, and I went up to South Korea when I finished Columbia Seminary. But I didn't know anything about underreached peoples at the time. But that log illustration is still valid. Yesterday, I was a young lady from First Presbyterian in Gainesville. She's studying at the College of Charleston, and she was on a cafe, 1040. She was in North Africa this summer. And she mentioned that 1% of all mission giving is focused on where the church already is. I mean, 99% is focused on where the church already is. They talk about the 1040 window, but less than 1% of all Christian giving is focused on that one quarter of the world that has never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. So I made that commitment. And then I'm getting back to Dr. Ralph Winter. Dr. Ralph Winter was there in 73, and he saw, this is the first time, 28% of those there, I was one of them, made commitments on that commitment card. And Ralph Winter was saying, what's going to keep this from being an emotional flash in the pan? They've made these commitments, they're all excited, and I was excited, but how are they going to follow through on it? So the next summer at Wheaton University, a Wheaton College, he started the first was now called Perspectives. In 74 and 75, it was in Wheaton, and then it moved to Pasadena in 76. And now it's all over the country, and it's in many countries of the world. It's in Arabic, it's in Korean, it's in Chinese, it's in other languages, it's in Russian. And it's being offered right here in Columbus at Christ Community Church. But I hope someday in the future, I hope next year, that y'all might host it here at First Presbyterian Church. It's a 15-week course. And you bring one person in once a week, it's so like a three-hour evening. Like a, I think it's on Tuesday nights here in Columbus at the moment. Every other Tuesday, every Tuesday for 15 weeks. And I won't say anymore. Look it up on the website, www.perspectives.org. It's Mission Vision. I already had a Mission Vision when I went to Korea and came home, and then I was a pastor in South Carolina. I had two small churches with the intention of going back to South Korea because I loved Korea. I loved the language. I loved the kimchi. And the best part of my time was living with a Korean family for 15 months. But I began to get news from Dr. Ralph Winter talking about those who've never had the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a picture on this display here. In 97, I took an elder from Ocean Drive Presbyterian Church in Myrtle Beach with me to Bangladesh and then to Nepal. And I was learning a little bit of Nepali and I shared that with a smaller group today. And I learned a phrase, Yesulet, Tapai Lai, Prim, Garnu Huncha, means Jesus loves you. And there was a guy coming down the trail barefoot, and I told him, Jesus loves you. And he said to me, who's Jesus? He'd never ever heard the name of Jesus. And that's why I keep his picture over here from 1997 to remind me of the flesh and blood, men and women, children, who've never had the opportunity to hear who Jesus Christ is in their own language and culture. That day, this is a Magar person. There are 500,000 Magar in Nepal. But thankfully, I had two Nepali brothers with me able to share more of the gospel. And they're a Hindu background. And we began to hear the idea of worshiping one God. He thought that was an amazing, good idea. Because if you know anything about Hinduism, there are 33 crore gods and goddesses in the Hindu worldview. You know what a crore is? 
It's a British term for 10, 10 million. Multiply 33 times 10 million, you got 330 million gods and goddesses in the Hindu worldview. They try to cover all the bases. But when they realized there's the one true God known in his Jesus Christ, he thought that was a really interesting idea. Anyway, that's another story, but let me get back to this shirt. It's been happening in two weeks ago, I was in with that Egypt network meeting. And this is a Senate of South Atlantic, right? Up until 1954, there was another Senate in the Presbyterian Church called the Senate of the Nile. But in 1954, under uh, uh, Nasser, Nasser, yeah, Nasser, they decided they need to be independent because of colonialism and paternalism, and so they separated out. And I didn't mention that church this morning, but the church in downtown Cairo on Tahir Square, if you've been watching the news, Tahir's where all the riots have been and where they had the confrontation with the Egyptians and the Muslim Brotherhood. But Casa El Dabara Church is really a Presbyterian church. And there's a seminary in downtown Cairo, which is really a Presbyterian seminary. Mike Parker, who used to be in Office of International Evangelism until two years ago, is now a professor of history at the seminary in downtown Cairo. But three or four years ago now, it was Arab Spring, and it came through Egypt. And 85 churches were burned to the ground. Other houses were burned and other institutions were burned. But their united message was, this is the churches. A lot of them Presbyterian. We don't let them call Presbyterian now, but they're really Presbyterian. And you know, there are 500,000 Presbyterians walking around in Egypt because of our Protestant Presbyterian mission work going back to 1834. But their united message was, we forgive you and God loves you. And that so stunned the Muslims and the Muslim Brotherhood and the other Muslims saying, what is this? How can they forgive us? And Sammy Maurice is a pastor, and he's a medical doctor. He's a pastor of that church right on Tahir Square. He said New Year's Day, they had a worship service of 45,000 people. Half of those were Muslim. And he said in Egypt, he says Islam is undergoing an earthquake right now because of ISIS. And he talked about Iraq particularly. 32% of the Iraqi survey says they're no longer Muslim. They don't have anything to do with that. He said it's 12% in Egypt. But a lot of these former Muslims are becoming atheists, but others are starting to go to the churches and becoming followers of Jesus Christ. And we don't get that in the news. They have a mission conference at Casa de Bar every April. And if anybody here would like to go, I'd be glad to lead a group to go. I know some other people are going in April. But God is doing amazing things. In the book I shared in the 11 o'clock service, I just read one little blurb. I have one book over here. It's called A Wind in the House of Islam. And I'll close with this story unless I get, sometimes I say I'm going to close and I don't. You know, people do that. Preachers particularly speak kind of a evangelistically. Anyway. <clears throat> For the first 1,300 years of Islamic history, there was not a single voluntary movement of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In the late 1800s, there were two movements, one in Ethiopia and one in Indonesia. And by the way, you may not know this, but the largest Muslim country is Indonesia. The second largest Muslim country is India. And we think all Muslims are Arabic, but only about 350 million of the 1.6 billion Muslims are Arabic speakers. And this is just... Most people, would, most people in the Muslim world wouldn't know what this means either. 
But God is doing amazing things in the last 50 years, and that's what the book in the Wind of the House Islam shows. There have been 102 identified movements, voluntary movements of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I can validate one of those in Bangladesh. My wife and I served as mission co-workers in Bangladesh from 90 to 93. In 1967, there's the first known Muslim believer coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and I could tell you more of that story. But a guy named David Garrison was skeptical, and he started interviewing and going around the globe trying to check this out. And it's an encouraging book. I wish I had two boxes of them, they're all gone except this one. I'd encourage you to try to get it. We don't get this in the news. <clears throat> we are on a mission from God. And God has commissioned us. And he wants us to open our eyes to see that the fields are white for harvest. Sammy Maurice just three weeks ago was saying, this is the harvest time for Egypt. This is a harvest time for the Muslim world. And they're wanting people to come over alongside them to help. And they have a, a vision of, we're having a, a festival in Birmingham in August with Franklin uh, Graham. But the Casa de Barra Church has a goal of having 30 festivals in the 30 largest cities in Egypt over the next three years. They're going to do four, they're going to have the first one in April, and then they're going to build on that, and they're getting these broad speakers and plans to, this is Egypt, heart of the Muslim world. And what we can learn from their excitement, they want us to come alongside and to help them, to be with them, just to encourage them. And I'll close with this story that Simon shared. They've been praying for a Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the apostle. And they said, God has raised up a man like that in the upper Egypt. He was a trained assassin and he's killed a lot of people. But he met Jesus Christ and he was a great imam. But he, met, but he was an assassin. He met Jesus Christ and they say now he's in this village and he's baptized a thousand people in upper Egypt. And he's bought these huge speakers and they're proclaiming the gospel in this town and nobody will dare touch him. But he says the people in that town are turning to Jesus and now they're using their, getting out on their balconies and praising God, singing hymns. This is upper Egypt. And God is kind of doing those things and we need to be encouraged. I wish you could have been with me last weekend. I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, hearing Carl Madeiras. And I told Chuck, he's somewhere out there, that I would send him the CD, and Carl Madeiras is a guy who's really out of the box. And he was up at the National Prayer Breakfast this week in D.C. And two years ago, we had a conference in San Antonio focusing on PCUSA mission folks, on EPC mission folks, and ECO mission folks, trying to keep everybody's focus. I remember Marge Carpenter, a long time ago, used to say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We are so distracted by so many things, we forget what God is primary mission. God's primary mission is having people introduced to Jesus Christ and all His glory. And even Islam, there are 96 verses in the Quran on Jesus. And I was telling somebody this morning, well, in the early service, I said, ask, who is your Cornelius? Look in Acts chapter 10, you see the story of Cornelius and Peter and how God miraculously brought them together. And my Cornelius right now, I think, in Birmingham, Alabama, is Jamal, a Palestinian, and his son, J.D. But if we can just reach out, and Carl Madeiras is talking about this. He's writing a book, written a book called Christians, Muslims, and Jesus. And then his latest book is Je Speaking Jesus, the Art of Not Evangelism. 
And he says, I don't even want to say I'm a Christian. I'm going to say I'm a follower of Jesus. In the 10th chapter of the Quran, Muhammad said to his followers, if you have any questions, go to the people of the book. Who are the people of the book? Christians and Jews. Now, if I was talking to a Muslim, yeah, but they said, oh, you corrupted it. But guess what? That same chapter says the Word of God cannot be changed. God is using the Quran, and you read the book, Wind in the House of Islam is a bridge to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Muslims have four holy books. The Quran, the Torah, which we would call the Pentateuch, and the Zabur, which we call the Psalms, and then the Injil, which are the Gospels. And the best thing I did when I was living in Bangladesh was give Muslim leaders a copy of the Injil, and they would honor it and worship it because it's one of their holy books. They've never seen it. How many of you have a Muslim friend? A few of you do. It takes prayer. In fact, one of my friends, David Cashin, he's fluent in Bengali. He teaches at CIU in Columbia, South Carolina. He used to say this, it takes 200 cups of tea to get into a heart-to-heart relation with another Muslim. That's a lot of tea. But he also has a challenge, a two-page challenge. He says, if you have a Muslim friend, I will show you how to start a Bible study for your Muslim friend, and he will mentor you through the process. That's how I got started with my Palestinian friend. And David has started Bible studies in 10 of 13 mosques where he's tried this. I'll just close with saying, this is in John chapter 4, the encounter of Jesus, the woman at the well. And you know the story... He says, give me a drink. And she says, who are you as a Jew to ask of me a Samaritan woman? And then he says to her, if you knew who it was that, who it was that offered you a drink, you'd have asked him and given you living water. And then you go on through the conversation. <clears throat> and then later on she says, one day we know the Messiah is coming and he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then she left her water pot and ran into the city and told all the men of the city, Come here, a man has told me everything that I've ever done. In the meantime, when she's in the city, the disciples come back and they're amazed that Jesus is speaking to a woman. But they don't ask, what do you want or what are you doing? And she leaves. In the meantime, they were saying, Jesus, take and eat. And Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And the disciples are talking among themselves. Did somebody bring him food? And Jesus understands what they're saying. He says, no. I tell you, say there's yet four months of the harvest. I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the harvest, which is ripe for the harvest. Because it says, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. And if God can help me and help you to lift up our eyes to see that the fields are ripe for the harvest, we're all on a mission for God. But it begins in prayer. And I'm not really good at that, but I think that's why Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in, in their midst. And when Jesus taught that in Matthew chapter 18, I think he was thinking about Moses back in Exodus 17. And Moses told Joshua, I'm going up the mountain to pray, and you go down in the valley to fight the Amalekites. And Moses got up on the mountain, and as long as he kept his hands up in an attitude of prayer, they were winning the victory. But Moses got tired. How many of you get tired in prayer? I do. And I need others to help me pray. But Moses got tired. His hands began to come down. The Israelites began to be defeated in the valley. But he had Aaron and Ur along beside him. And they saw what was happening. And they got Moses and put him on a rock, set him on a rock, and held his hands up. And they won a great victory that day. 
And I think that's what Jesus was referring to when He said, where two or three are gathered together in My name, there I am in their midst. And He went on to say, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And if two, of you, two or more of you agree on anything in My name, if you ask it, it shall be done for you. So look at the people sitting around your table. We need each other in the body of Christ to pray. And we pray it all the time. In the Lord's Prayer, we prayed it several times this morning. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I, I promise I'll close with this. <laughs> I promise. You probably haven't heard his name. But I, when you go home, Google the role of prayer in spiritual awakening. It's by J. Edwin Orr. It's a talk he gave in 1976 at a prayer congress, congress in Dallas, Texas. I audited his last class in 1987. He died in 87 or 88. But can you remember that? The role of prayer in spiritual awakening. And it'll talk about the second great awakening here in the United States of America. He'll talk about the revival in 1857 in New York City. And then he'll talk about the Welsh revival in 1904. And that Welsh revival leapt over to northeast India. And I could tell more stories about that. But will you do that for me? Raise your hand if you will Google the role of prayer and spiritual awakening when you get home. It's 26 minutes. And I think God will bless you and encourage you if you look at that. We need a revival in our land. We need a revival across the globe. And again, thank you for Chuck and for Jones having me here with you. And may the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you and grant you peace. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Cody Watson. You have revived and inspired us. And I want us to make a commitment today that we will bring that Perspectives course to First Presbyterian and introduce it to our members and to the, to the others in the Columbus community who have yet to take that course. I've heard so many wonderful things about it. It's being offered right now at Christ Community Church on Tuesday nights and has been at other churches. They like to move it around to different churches so nobody can claim it, but we want to claim it for 15 weeks. This has been a fun uh, conference, has it not? It's been awesome. It has given us an opportunity to think, as uh, Aretha Bradfield Powers sang for us. But this is a harvest time. That may be a new thought for us. This is a harvest time. And the fields are white for the harvest. And we are engaged in some of those most exciting mission fields through these partnerships that you are giving to today and in the days to come at Foreman Christian College. What an amazing thing God is doing in the midst of Pakistan with a population of 97% Muslim. And here's a Christian college in that country. We are doing it through our relationship with the Callisons in Iraq. We are supporting missionaries in Iraq, working with the Kurds there in that country. And then also, just to mention another name, Donald Marsden. We've been in relationship with him for many years and now working with PFF to unreached people groups 
We are in the heart of this harvest, the field where, where uh, the Lord is doing some exciting work. So your gifts matter. So think. Think about what the Lord has done for you and what the Lord is asking of you to share these blessings so that others might be blessed. We And, and the other thing that uh, Aretha sang, she said, go on back, way on back, way on back. Well, Cody took us all the way back to the Old Testament, to the Great Commission that was offered by God and reinforced by His Son Jesus to go into all the world. And as you go, do. What are we called to do? To simply share the good news of God's redeeming love in Jesus Christ. It's that easy. It's the main thing. And we do best when we keep the main thing the main thing. Marge Carpenter told us when she was our global mission speaker. Now I'm going to close with this. <laughs> that letter on his shirt. What letter is it? And it stands for? We've been called to follow the Nazarene who was willing to do whatever his father asked of him. And his father asked him to go to the cross. And so we get to wear not a letter, but we get to wear the cross. The powerful symbol of God's love that is going to change and redeem the world. It's the cross. And it's what we get to wear and what we get to share and what your gifts will help accomplish through the offering of what God has given to you and the offering of your lives. So please give generously of yourself and of your resources. Let's stand for a benediction. Offering envelopes are on your table and please help the kitchen staff clear the tables. Don't forget that your table arrangements are for you and the serve items are for you as well. Let us pray. For sale. Yeah, Jones didn't want you to take one home for free. It's not a door prize. Let's pray. Loving God, we do praise you and thank you for the ways that you are alive and at work in such beautiful and amazing ways. And you are calling us to join you right here in our church, right here in Columbus, Georgia. And you're calling us to continue to be connected with brothers and sisters around this good earth as we see your salvation plan coming to fruition by your grace and Holy Spirit. We want to be part of it. Stir our hearts, our minds, our thoughts today that we, as we go, may do what it is you call us to do to share your Son, Jesus, through every thought, word, and deed. So as blessed people, we say thank you today. We want to show our gratitude through our gifts and through our living. And help us to do that. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now receive the benediction. Listen to these words. And now, to the one who by the work of the Spirit alive in you is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine, to Him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ and unto all generations now and forever. Amen and amen. Go in peace.